everybody. It's a great pleasure to welcome you all to Sheffield for the 11th Children's Media Conference. It's been my job to chair the advisory committee meetings over the last 12 months, which have led us to the next couple of days of inspiring, informative and challenging content. And I believe from talking to this evening's keynote speaker that the challenge may be about to begin. He's going to address an issue of vital relevance to most of the kids' community here today. We may all be creators, but who is paying for our work? How can we create sustainable business models in the kids' market? And this is as relevant in education as it is in games, or in TV with its new models of delivery, in publishing, licensing, and even, dare I say, the arts and culture sector. Beyond the relative safety of public subsidy, and even that can't be taken for granted these days, and with the landscape shifting and changing with alarming speed, where do the future funding models lie? Our speaker this evening will also go on to take another view of the child as a new force in brand and market decision-making. As the creator and shaper of content, as much as its consumer or receiver. This new child, technologically adept, media savvy, adaptive and interestingly empowered, is, according to our speaker, the cause of a new tipping point in the position of media in our lives and how it relates to brands. I said it would be challenging, and it will. We'll take your questions and comments after the presentation, and I know there'll be plenty. So, to discuss inflection points, our kids, the new mobile, please welcome the CEO of Super Awesome, Dylan Collins. Good evening, good afternoon. Sorry, I was a little late coming out. Myself and the sound engineer were having a slightly intimate moment with my microphone. Um, excellent. So, um, I, I, I suppose I start with something of a complaint. So, Michael Acton-Smith, who I love and who's amazing, has been described in the media as being the Willy Wonka of games and the Willy Wonka of technology, and I'm super envious of that. When I was described in the email that went out two or three days ago, I was described as um, the Don Draper of kids. <laughs> also, to be fair, also the Willy Wonka of kids. Um, and then also the Pied Piper of kids. Uh, that on the left is for DC Comics fans. That's the Pied Piper from the Batman comics. Um, I, I, it is true that I, I, uh, I do wear a number of hats. Um, I haven't shown this email to my mother yet, because I think it's going to confuse her greatly about what it is I actually do. Um, I have promised her over the years that I will eventually uh, get a proper job. Um, I suppose, I, you know, um, thank you very much, first of all, uh, for asking me to, to, to come and talk. Um, it, is, uh, it, it really is an honor to be asked. Um, I am an advertising guy, or at least I run an advertising company, so first of all, sorry. Um, however, however, before you start throwing things, um, I suppose I, I, I should tell you a little bit more about myself. Um, uh, I also sit on the board of Brownback Films, who are considered by many, I suppose, to be you know, the, the, one of the successors to, to, to Pixar, the 
Pixar for Kids TV. Um, we're the studio behind Henry Hugglemonster, Octonauts, Olivia, Doc Stuffins, Peter Rabbit. Um, so perhaps unusually, I, I understand more about some of your world um, than a regular ad guy. Um, I also do a little bit of investment. I'm a venture partner with uh, a venture capital fund in London called Hoxton Ventures. Uh, and either personally or with the fund, I've invested in some technology companies, some digital media companies, um, and a bunch of kids' companies, uh, which I'll talk about a little later on. So things like 3D printing, mobile games. So I, I, I kind of have a fairly broad spectrum of experience and knowledge and a wonderful collection of mistakes uh, that I've made in a whole bunch of different industries. Um, I, I suppose, though, just, just to, to clear the air and, and talk about the elephant in the room, um, I do run a company called uh, Super Awesome. Um, and I'll, I'll talk a little bit about just some of the experiences we've had. Super Awesome is an advertising and marketing company. We're the biggest in Europe. Um, we, we, you know, we essentially work with all the brands. We probably work with a lot of you guys in the audience. Um, and you know, so I understand that challenge. I understand the challenge of content. Um, but hopefully you can understand that for me, telling you a little bit about myself and that I understand content and that I understand technology, that perhaps you might still see me as the devil, but I'm at least the devil you know. <laughs> um, so uh, it, it's, it's, sometimes I'm accused of doing too many things. I have no idea where people get this idea from. Um, this, I suppose, illustrates a little bit about what I've done with myself for the last 10 years or so. And I, I'm kind of putting this up really to, to, to illustrate a point. Um, I began my career in the video games industry. I was telling Sue backstage um, that being in the, in, in the children's industry and the kids' industry is really a complete accident for me, and, and it is. Um, I started in video games. Um, and we started our first company, a company called Demonware, top left logo. Um, in, uh, when we were still in university in Trinity College in Dublin. And we started it uh, above a tattoo parlor on a small street in North Dublin. It was literally the worst place to put anything. Um, the temptation to get terrible tattoos every evening was absolutely <laughs> immense. Um, over time, believe it or not, that company became uh, one of the biggest multiplayer technology companies in the world. Uh, so we, we built the tech that connected people together. So when you were playing on, a, on, a, on an Xbox or on a PlayStation or on a PC or something like that, it was actually our tech that was connecting people from around the world um, and let you kill other people remotely. Um, doesn't sound totally romantic, but it was a big thing. Um, eventually that company became or was acquired by Activision, um, and it's now the technology backbone uh, of the Call of Duty franchise. Um, and you know, we, we started that company um, and our very first game, our very first client, they had 100 people in the game playing together online. Um, and we thought it was just amazing. You know, now it's been used by I think four or 500 million players around the world. And um, the reason I'm telling you that is not so that you think I'm awesome. <laughs> but if you want to do that, it's absolutely fine. The point um, of this is that we started that company in 2003, and at the time, and a lot of you from guessing at ages out there, a lot of you probably won't remember this, but gaming um, at that point, the video games industry was considered niche, it was considered small, 
nobody thought it was going to become one of the most important entertainment industries in the world, and it did. Um, you know, it, it became literally the biggest entertainment sector in the world. Um, I mean, and you got to understand, I, I grew up um, in a small village uh, in the south of Ireland, and my parents, for years, were embarrassed to tell the neighbours what I actually did. It's like, Jesus, don't tell them he works in video games. Christ, no! You know, tell them he's an accountant or something like that. Because um, that, that, was, that was the image of the video games industry back then. Nobody realised. Um, and a few of us did. And I, there's no way I'm going to claim that, that myself and my co-founders were, were particular visionaries. You know, we really, we were just nerds who didn't want to get real jobs. Um, but it, it, it worked out, you know, pretty well for us. And um, I suppose it brings me to, I, I've got a couple of themes that I'll work through into this keynote, hopefully interestingly. Um, uh, the, one of the big themes is about inflection points. I see, you know, the kids industry today from, from all of the angles, from content, from technology, from marketing, from media, to be at this inflection point, that <laughs> bit in the middle. And inflection points are interesting, you know, because you can go up or you can go down, but usually something happens. And it, it reminds me very much of the video games industry, you know, 10 years ago. Um, and I think, you know, as an industry, um, there are decisions that we have to make. There are things that we really have to think about to figure out whether we're going up that curve or down that curve over the next three or four or five years. So I mentioned that, that you know, super awesome for me and, and being in, in this industry with you was really something of an accident. It certainly wasn't deliberate. Um, we started the company about nearly two years ago. And I remember sitting down with friends of mine over dinner and said, you know, I think we're going to build a company in the kids space. And the general polite reaction was something like this. <laughs> Not single face palm, but double face palm. Um, and I remember, um, you know, we went, uh, we went and, and, and started pitching it to investors. You know, we said, hey, look, we've built some companies, we've done pretty well. We think there's a great opportunity to do something amazing in the kids' industry worldwide. You know, look how exciting it is. You know, and, and again, we were politely met with, with a vaguely similar reaction. <laughs> um, and then I remember going to a few people um, in, the, uh, in the kids' industry saying, hey, we, you know, we think we can help make you money and do some advertising, we can do it properly, etc." And we were again met, met with this kind of reaction. So it, it wasn't an obvious thing for, for us to do. And you know, you, you'll have read some, some um, nice and, and, and sometimes very generous stories in the media about Super Awesome and the things that we've done. And truthfully, we had a lot of people turn us down in the early days, in terms of getting involved, in terms of coming on board, uh, in terms of investing. Um, you know, I, I think at the start, we probably pitched something close to about 17 people, and they mostly turned us down. So in the end, I actually funded the thing myself. Um, and we brought on board some, some angel investors last year after they were seeing like, how quickly we were growing. Very insightful angel investors. Um, but the interesting point about all that is that fundamentally, to the outside world, to investors, to venture capitalists, they see the kids' industry as being fundamentally very, very difficult to invest in. I'm just going to say that again. This is, everyone in this room represents, you know, what you create, what you build. We literally and figuratively represent the future of society. It's a pretty important place to be. It's a pretty important position to hold. 
Um, and yet most investors, most sophisticated, knowledgeable, experienced investors think that this is a tough space to, 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 to invest in. Um, and, and I think that's, that's, that, that's an interesting thing, and I think that's something that we need to address. Um, and you know, although it was tough for us, um, you know, we got the company up and running. Some of you will know that our very first product was a box, physical box. And those of you who don't know, our very first product was a box. It was, it was, it was, uh, it was a free box that we sent out to kids. Um, and it had um, you know, collectibles and stickers and toys and books and things like that. And I remember pitching it to the first, the first set of companies. I said, look, we're going we're, we're to help kind of break through all the noise and all the clutter. We're going to send out a free box to kids. And it was pretty much that reaction all over again. There's no way that's going to work. No way it's going to work. Um, so today, the, the box, or box of awesome as it's known, is, is kind of one of several products that we have. We went from shipping 1,500 boxes um, in our very first launch. Today, we ship about 20,000. We've got a waiting list of 200,000 kids. You know, we ship a lot of things in those boxes. There's, there's awesome toys and stickers and collectibles and things like that. But one of the things I'm super, super proud of is, you know, over the last 12 months, we've shipped something like half a million books in those boxes. Um, and, you know, yes, we are, you know, a marketing and advertising company at the, at the end of the day. But we are doing, you know, we are putting books in the hands of kids, a lot of which probably wouldn't have picked them up of their own accord. You know, so there's, there's things that we're very, very proud of. And, and you know, we help people do this in a, in a pretty safe um, kind of way. And today we're fortunate enough that not every investor says no to us. And we actually have some people knocking on our door at the moment. Um, but it's a lesson that, you know, you're wrong until everyone decides that you're right. Um, and uh, you know, I, I think one of the roles that we try and maintain in the industry, the position we try and maintain, is to help make this sustainable. At the end of the day, um, you know, we're trying to make money for our partners. We're trying to help our brands do something um, safe. Um, I think we've got plenty more to do. Um, but I think we're on the right track. But, but don't for a second think it's been easy for us. Um, and don't for a second think that the rest of the world thinks it's easy. Um, I want to talk about digital, obviously, um, and digital and kids. Um, and, you know, digital and kids is not an easy thing. Um, this has been the change in content over the last five years. There has been a structural change in content. There is twice as much content. There is four times as much content. If you believe that diagram, there is five times as much content in the market as there was four years ago. Can anyone tell me what you think is the biggest threat to our industry today? Shout out some answers. The biggest threat to the kids' industry today. Shout. Okay, give me another one. Okay, 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 okay. All right, all right. We'll do a therapy session tomorrow. This is, I was just looking for feedback. Okay. I don't think it's any of those things. I think that the single biggest threat to our content, to our digital content industry today is mobile. I think it's mobile. I think it's the thing that everyone thinks is the best thing ever. And I probably sound a little bit like a crazy person kind of saying that out loud. Um, but think about it, right? 
there is huge pressure on commercialization of mobile. Everyone is building something for mobile. Everyone is building mobile content. Um, there's enormous pressure on in-app purchases and apps for very good reason, right? We can't have anything that resembles predatory monetization. No questions about it. There's pressure on advertising. Not everyone is down with having advertising within an app from a brand perspective or from any other perspective. So think about that. We make less money in our mobile digital content than a lot of other sectors. There's huge, huge pressure on marketing costs, mostly because of what you see up on the screen, right? Someone shouted out discoverability. Discoverability is definitely an issue. We've got all that content out there, a huge amount of it free. Fragmentation is another. Kids are consuming content on so many different devices. The net effect in that is that the cost of actually getting to kids in a meaningful way has gone up. Okay, so think about that, the, that basic maths uh, equation. Our revenue has come down and our marketing costs have come up. Now, I ignored pretty much all my business lectures in college. Um, but fundamentally, the maths on that does not stack up. And I've been talking to a lot of kids app developers around the world, and there's not a single one of them in the kids space who aren't a little bit concerned about the sustainability of their industry over the next one, two, three years. And you think about that um, for just a second. Can you imagine any other audience sector picking the top three or four mobile companies and them saying to you, you know, Jesus, I'm not sure where our business is going to be this time next year. That is pretty rare, and I think probably unique to our, our, our kids' mobile industry. But that's a little bit scary. Um, and I, I think we really, really, really have to accept that our kids' content industry, our mobile kids' content industry, our digital kids' content industry, needs to have a viable economic model. Um, I'm certainly not saying that you know, 99 pound in-app purchases are acceptable. Clearly they're not. Um, but equally, we, we cannot have a situation where brands and apps are actively avoiding the kids category in a lot of the mobile app stores because they simply don't think that they can survive there. <laughs> I think Jay-Z is a very wise man. Um, you know, our, our, again, this is another point I'm going to come to, but our biggest challenge is that our kids, our consumers, um, our audiences need a very, very specific content platform. Most people don't make the fundamental realization that app stores are not content distribution platforms. App stores are monetization platforms. And there's a very, very real difference between the two. Google and Apple are doing a, an excellent job, obviously, in terms of promotion and everything they do. But bear in mind, they are not kids' companies. You know, they're not even content companies. They can't be expected to do this for us. Of course, we have to be responsible in terms of how we do it. You know, from the media companies, the platform holders, the content creators, we do have to figure out how to balance this. Otherwise, we're not going to be able to make any more content. I sometimes analogize this to, to it being the, the the equivalent of juggling chainsaws and kittens, right? You don't want to get the two confused, but somehow you've got to keep them all in the air. And we need to think more and more about creating platforms that work for us, not trying to shoehorn other people's platforms, which are specifically not designed to do that. Um, you know, the, I, I'm, I'm not known for being hugely diplomatic. I'm sure you've already figured out. Um, but 
the future of the, of the kids' market is more polarized than it is today. Fundamentally, I think there are going to be two types of companies over the next three, four, five years. There are going to be the big ones, the big companies, the ones who can consolidate, the ones who can create economies of scale, and there are going to be the niche companies who can make and craft beautiful things and charge a premium price. That's it. There will be no in-betweeners. Um, you know, we're, our audience in, in, in Super Awesome is pretty huge. We're probably going to hit about 50 million kids sometime in the next couple of months. And it probably sounds like me boasting. It's not. We go for those big numbers by necessity. In order to survive in this market, you have to get big. And I think as, you know, as, as, as stakeholders in the, this industry, you have to start thinking about which end of, the, of that spectrum that you want to be. Um, because if you're not aiming for size, you really need to be aiming for the most perfectly, amazingly crafted piece of content or technology um, that you can possibly bring to the world. Does anybody know where that is? Guesses? Shout. Ireland. Where? Ireland. No. <laughs> Ireland doesn't get that much sunshine. It really doesn't. <laughs> That's true. Where? Very good. Do you know where? No. Because <laughs> that would have stolen my thunder. Um, this is very good. It's Silicon Valley. This is Santa Clara Valley, which is essentially the epicenter of Silicon Valley. Silicon Valley began in roughly 1971, um, decades ago at this stage, uh, almost 50 years in fact. Um, and it today has become the center of the internet primarily because it's got one of the most hyper-developed ecosystems on the planet. Ecosystems are incredibly powerful things. They are the reasons, that I think the driving reason, why the internet guys almost always seem to arrive in any industry and spoil the party for anyone. Um, someone shouted about YouTube earlier. Um, this, is the C this is a quote that the CEO of Fullscreen, who was a rival to Maker Studios, came out with during the week. Um, I, th I thought it was quite brilliant. Um, going back to the video games industry for a second. So when we were in, at the height of the video games industry, you know, and it was Xbox and it was PlayStation and everything else, we watched social gaming start. And we watched Zynga come out and start to make games uh, on Facebook and in web browsers. And I remember all the wisest minds in the console industry got together and they looked at it and they went, nah, it's just not going to work, this whole Facebook gaming thing. It's not going to go anywhere. People want real graphics. You know, they want real Hollywood-type experiences. Um, and of course, Zynga IPO'd, um, and the console industry largely got eclipsed. Um, and we're seeing the same thing happen, I think, with, with TV content and YouTube. Um, you know, the internet guys are coming in, and once again, they're messing up all the furniture. Um, but it's really happening. There's a reason that Disney paid $450 million for Maker Studios, a company that was completely out of money, right? Maker Studios was going to hit the wall. Disney came and paid almost half a billion dollars for it um, just to get their hands on it. And if you think that, you know, a, a lot of people will know this. This is a research slide from, from some of our research where we ask kids, you know, what are your favorite apps? And it tends not to look like the App Store top 10, right? Consistently, YouTube comes out at the very, very top of everything, um, above games, always, always, always. Um, 
And I think, you know, in terms of getting there, as an industry, we've got to think about making more acquisitions. You know, we need to think about buying more companies to help us get to this, this place. Not for any type of moral reason or because we think we need to help people out, because it is by far the most efficient way to evolve and grow. And I think, you know, if you look at the big technology success stories of the last five or 10 years, a huge amount of them have come from acquisitions. So YouTube was acquired by Google. Android was an acquisition by Google. Uh, Facebook acquired Instagram. Facebook also acquired WhatsApp, which I'll get to in a sec. Amazon has acquired Lovefilm. Amazon has acquired Woot. Um, all of these acquisitions have happened. And the reason they happen is that these companies in Silicon Valley realize that startups, and a lot of you in the audience are startups, startups are really an outsourced R&D function for these big companies. Right. And there's, there's two big reasons for that. And anyone who works in a big company will recognize this immediately. One, big companies need digital DNA. It's a desperately, desperately underestimated element of actually making digital products. Um, I've seen huge amounts of companies experiment and try and build it internally. Sometimes it works, but you know what? A lot of the time, it really, really doesn't. The second reason is that to, to get to success in the digital space, you need a process of repeated and efficient failures. You need to be able to fail fast. Um, and in the digital kid space, I think that's, that's true more than ever. You know, we need to fail spectacularly. We need to fail really, really hard. We've got to fail in both brilliant and sublime ways. And we've got to fail enough so that we can actually find the things um, that are absolutely going to work in this particular space. Um, and can everyone who's a small company, like under 20 people, put your hands up? Okay, keep your hands up. Everyone who's not one of those people, I'm gonna presume is in a big company. They're all the people you should be looking at right now in terms of how to think about your roadmap. So get talking later on. Um, Maker Studios was, a, was a, you know, a, a great example of an ecosystem and how it can really work. Um, and I think as an extension of that, we need to try and create an investment ecosystem in the kids industry. Um, I don't think it's going to be funded by established venture capitalists because they find it you know, too hard. I look at tons and tons of pitches every day, uh, or certainly every week. Uh, on the way in, I was pitched by you know, a very aggressive and ambitious and frankly quite brilliant chap um, who has a robotics company. And he grabbed me on the way in. I love that sort of stuff. Um, but we can't invest in it at all. Um, and as an industry, we need to figure out how to create something that can, if not replicate what Silicon Valley is, then certainly get to that point where we can create amazing companies. Um, you know, we need to create digital infrastructure of the children. We need to create a digital infrastructure for the children. Um, we leave it too long. Um, that same digital infrastructure will probably be created by the children. Um, you know, and I, if I was to make one suggestion about your time at the Children's Media Conference, I would say for the big companies, think about who are the interesting little companies you know, who, can, who can really bring value to, do, to you. And you're probably going to say, oh, well, look, Jesus, that's quite a self-serving thing to say. Yes, it obviously is, but that's kind of the point. You know? The more companies that get, that get acquired, 
the more investors like us are going to invest in new small companies and we can get bigger and bigger and bigger. Okay, I'm gonna start getting a bit more optimistic. Well, after the next bit. Um, the, uh, cause I, I wanna talk about this a little cause it's, it's, it's an interesting topic. Um, you know, a lot of you believe that there's too much technology within the kids space and that our kids spend too much time looking at screens and that somewhere down the line there are going to be consequences to this, negative consequences. You're probably right. You know, there probably are going to be those really negative consequences, more than what we've seen. Frighteningly, we don't know what that means just yet. Um, and over the weekend, it was quite interesting, when, when, when I got a call um, about, uh, about uh, being asked to come along, I was um, spending time with a bunch of people and one of them, by sheer chance, I can't remember if I said this to Greg or not. Um, she was a psychologist, and she was based in uh, Silicon Valley, right in the heart of where all this is going on. Child psychologist at that. And she had two kids, one was 10 and one was 14. Uh, the 10-year-old spent his entire time talking about Minecraft. Um, and, she, and, and her kids go to literally one of the top schools in the US. And it's, it's you know 20 minutes away from Facebook's office. Um, they all, in that school, they all switched exclusively to tablets about three years ago. Um, they have monthly briefings for um, parents to explain, you know, what's actually going on. Uh, should they delete their profile from Snapchat, etc. Um, but interestingly, in her private practice, which she, um, so she spends a lot of time with kids, um, what she is seeing is that more and more, there are increasing levels of anxiety away from technology. There are increasing levels of um, loneliness as well. And I've seen this with conversations with, with teachers too. They're seeing a real kind of emotional change with kids. We've all seen the cyberbullying cases that go on. You know, these, are, these are things that we have to think about. Um, and the change that we are seeing in this, in this generation of kids, in this market, I think is the greatest change we have seen in a generation of kids since the war. To me, this is the generation of kids which, which is going to change everything. They are going to create, and they are going to destroy. And I really didn't mean to be that apocalyptic when I wrote that. <laughs> um, let, me, let me give you an example. Uh, in September, October last year, uh, in the run-up to Christmas, Sony and Microsoft were spending tens of millions in marketing money uh, talking about their new consoles, obviously for Christmas. Tens of millions of pounds, right? And so we, we put a survey into the field and asked kids a pretty simple question. You know, amidst all of this console hype and everything else, what do you want for Christmas? This is what we got. So bear in mind the tens of millions in marketing money being spent. Not that marketing doesn't work, just to be clear. But um, in, terms of, uh, in terms of what kids want, does anyone remember off the top of their head when Apple launched the iPad? Apple launched the iPad, very good, in April 2014. So in less than four years, one tablet has undone hundreds of millions, perhaps billions in marketing spend of two of the biggest entertainment companies on the planet. And that is down to what kids want. Um, back 50 to 60% of kids have tablets. Um, it's a big number. It's only going to go up. Um, you want another example of, of how the kids are reshaping the world around us? Look at this graph. 
Some of you will have seen it before if you see me talk. I tend to kind of push it a lot. We ask kids, you know, how much time are you spending on Facebook? Are you still um, going to Facebook? Is face Facebook amongst your favorite websites? And about a year, year and a half ago, we started saying to our clients, something going on here. Kids are moving away from Facebook. And they laughed. And they said, no, it's not going to happen. And we said, uh-huh, that's what the data is saying. And more and more, we have seen Facebook's decline. Kids still have Facebook accounts, to be clear, but they're using it less and less and less. This is the biggest social network in the world. Interestingly, that um, the, the red line that's growing uh, is YouTube. Can anyone else think of a web property as old as YouTube that is growing that much? I don't think I can. Um, today, as much as I beat up the games industry, kids under the age of 16 represent about 50% of the total revenue that's there. Um, it is absolutely huge. Everyone in this room obviously has a kid's strategy. However, not every big company has a kid's strategy. And I think this generation is going to change that. And one of the reasons I see this inflection point is because more and more companies are realizing that there's something going on here. I would sum it up in one line. Kids are the new mobile. This generation of kids is honestly going to reshape the internet, technology, and everything consumer in the same way that mobile and tablet did. Kids, bear in mind, are the reason that Facebook spent a billion dollars to buy Instagram. Kids are the reason that Mark Zuckerberg spent $17 billion to acquire WhatsApp. You know, Facebook today is rapidly becoming a platform for parents, and I think more and more people know that. And it's going to be a very lucrative thing in and of its own right. But it's going to, it presents a real sustainable question. Who's going to use it next? Um, you know, 60% of kids own up to using chat applications on their phones. In reality, it's much, much more. Um, but this market is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. This is just a collection of some of the chat apps um, that come out uh, in the questions that we ask. Um, you'll notice this doesn't include Yo, which kids just don't seem to care about. Um, and, you know, interestingly, we also asked kids, so why do you use chat apps? Pretty simple answer, I guess. Um, Biggest kids, uh, the biggest internet companies in the world are slowly waking up to what's going on here. And they're realizing that this generation of kids are doing something that their parents or older siblings um, aren't doing. They're doing something different. And, you know, over the 11 years that the Children's Media Conference has run, you've probably heard a whole bunch of people stand up here and say, oh, you know, kids are different. This generation is, is different. And, you know, maybe this is just me morphing into my, my Don Draper persona. Well. Let me introduce you to some people who make me think differently. Don't know why that's there. Which is kind of appropriate, don't you think? <laughs> Fail often. Um, this is Jordan Casey. Jordan Casey is now 14. Uh, I got to know Jordan a couple of years ago when he was 12. Um, at 12, he was the youngest iOS developer in Europe. Uh, today, He's the guy behind a product called Teachware, which is software uh, to help teachers in the classroom, right? He's 14. This is Nicholas Rubin, extremely photogenic Nicholas Rubin. Um, Nicholas is 16, and he recently released a plugin for the Chrome browser called Greenhouse. Greenhouse is genius. When you hover over a politician's name on a US website, it pops up a little table that you can see, see there 
which shows the donations that that politician has received from various interest groups. <laughs> going to destroy everything. Mark, mark my words. Um, this chap is, is, uh, is Ethan Duggan. Ethan is 12 and Ethan was the genius behind an app called Lazy Husband, um, which was immediately appealing. Um, and he, he learned to code interestingly through Code Academy, which is a relatively recent startup in the US. And Lazy Husband essentially is a series of automated replies that you can just give um, to your significant other. Um, <laughs> He was, he was inspired, and I, I'm not making this up, he was inspired by going clothes shopping with his mother um, and having to repeatedly answer, you know, does my ex look big and whatever. Um, this uh, is Michael Seyman. Michael is now 17, although I think that photo was taken a couple of years ago. Uh, and he's the developer behind an app called Four Snaps. Um, and... Um, uh, Four Snaps uh, a few months ago was close to the top 100 apps globally on iOS. Um, he started building uh, apps at the age of 13. Um, he's now 17. Finally, this is Thomas Suarez. Thomas is the youngest, at the age of 12, sorry, 14. Uh, Thomas is the youngest Google Glass developer on the planet. Uh, if you go to his site, he's been building a bunch of different apps. Uh, one that I'm most excited by is Glass Cat Laser, um, which essentially lets you, from your Google Glass, by looking around, direct a laser which is pointed somewhere, or which is actually coming from somewhere else, which your cat can chase after. <laughs> I mean, that's pretty much James Bond villain stuff, right? And he's 14. Holy Jesus. Um, for the first time in our history, as a society, I think, we are being presented with a generation of kids who are capable of exceeding our abilities while they are still kids. I'm not sure when this has happened before, but it is definitely happening. And if you think I'm just sort of, you know, picking extreme cases, you know, I'm really not. Um, here's some data that we ran a couple of months back where we asked kids about what they were doing technically. You know, about 26% of them, about a quarter of kids, claim to have written some kind of code. You know, that be that HTML, HTML5, something like Scratch. Um, it's pretty amazing. Um, about a third of them have used some sort of graphical editing tool. Um, and this is a collection of kids under the age of 14. You know, it was a sample, I think, of about 1,000. Um, so there's a real change that's going on here. Um, the other thing which kind of backs up this point, that kids are becoming much more creators and consumers than ever before, the uh, global toy industry, which I love, sadly is in decline um, by about 1.5% to 2% every year, is declining except for the construction category. You know, this ties into Minecraft. The reason that Minecraft exploded was because it allowed kids to be able to create. It gave them the tools. It actually empowered them. Um, We've got new frameworks for these kids. This is the generation who can access anything right now. And this isn't even the generation that's being raised by tablets. Wait till we see what they do. And we are, you know, as a society, we are, we are woefully embarrassingly underprepared for this generation, I really think. You know. And you might all say, oh, well, it's kids. How are they going to really impact everything? Let me give you an, uh, an analogy. You know, this 
Admittedly, it's a slightly left field analogy. I'm, as some of you who know me will know I'm, I'm a little bit into rap music. And by a little, I mean a lot. In the early 90s and late 80s, rap was considered, still considered a niche music, right? It was, it was still not very white. It was still considered pretty violent, right? That's NWA, who came from Compton. At the time, a super tough place, right, right in LA. Chap on the right, far right of that lineup, you'll know Ice Cube. Dr. Dre, most of you will know as well. No one thought rap was going to go mainstream. No one thought rap was going to shape the world and entertainment culture and society the way it did. Dr. Dre is now on the executive team in Apple. <laughs> this, you know, this was the transition. This took, what, about 20, 25 years? You know, things can happen and shape our culture you know, beyond anything that we can really, really predict. Um, and you, know, you look at this trend that's happening with kids, and you honestly think that this trend is going to do anything other than massively accelerate. Think about, think about classrooms and think about teachers. For a lot of you, and I'm sure some of you are teachers here, you think about the imbalance that exists in the classroom today between some teachers and students when it comes to talking about anything technical, programming, computer science, anything around that. Imagine what's, what that is going to be like in five years' time, the new generation of kids, right? It's probably going to be the same teachers, though. How are we going to deal with that? Think how sophisticated they're going to be. What do we, what, you know, how do we even think about that? So this is why I believe that as an industry, we are at absolutely an inflection point. And we can, we can go up the curve or we can go down the curve. I truly believe, I mean, I am incredibly excited to be in this industry and, and you know, I feel privileged to be here with you all because this is a sector, this is an industry, this is a group of, of, of people, of humans that is going to become one of the most pivotal and one of the most influential over the next decades. And I think you know, all of us here, we can choose to be leaders, we can choose to be followers in this. You know, we can choose to be spectators or we can choose to get involved. I know which choice I've made. Thank you all very much for listening. It's been very fun. Uh, I think we've got time for probably about five minutes of Q&A, if you want to ask anything or just shout. Um, or not? Okay, someone in the back. Yep. Can you tell everyone who you are and where you're from? If you insist. I'm um, afraid I do. Okay, my name's Lewis Bronze and I'm from a company called Espresso Education. And I want to ask you, referring back to the slide you showed quite recently of the percentage of children that had used Photoshop, do you know what percentage used it in the school as opposed to used it at home? That's a very good question. Um, I don't know is the answer. I would suspect, I can find out, I think Tom is floating around the audience somewhere. Um, I suspect that more of that is at home than in school. We're seeing more and more, um, I suppose you'd call them parallel movements. Um, things like Coder Dojo, um, you know, movements that are actually trying to help teachers and work alongside teachers in terms of providing additional technical education um, you know, within the overall system. 
Um, and that, you know, so far that seems to be working okay. It's going to be interesting to watch how that scales up. I, I don't think, and I mean this with utter respect, I don't think teachers can do it on their own. I, I don't think they should be expected to do it on their own. It's a very, very hard task. Um, you know, and I think, you know, we are going to see and we need to see more of those volunteer movements um, that, can, that can somehow sort of thread in and out of the curriculum. Hello. Um, Stuart from The Guardian. Um, the, the developers there, the young developers there, this isn't about you, but they're all boys. I was wondering what you think about the girl-boy question. Are young girls being encouraged? Are they getting the opportunities to, to kind of do this stuff as well? Is this going to be a generation that kind of shatters some of those stereotypes about boy developers, girls doing stuff? Or is there still a problem there? I get asked this question a lot. Look, I can see you about to write this and post something. <laughs> Jesus. Okay, well. So, in The Guardian tomorrow morning. Um, anecdotally, at this sort of stuff, we see more boys than girls. There is, is definitely more interest. Um, and interestingly, um, and watch how I neatly pivot to a different question and answer. Um, it's one of those, it is genuinely one of those rare activities we see that kids seem to be completely cool doing with their parents. Um, it, it is definitely much more cooperative you know, because you see kids kind of 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14. Um, and usually, certainly for boys, that kind of 10, 11, 12, certainly 11, 12, you know, the, the, that relationship with the father tends to become a little bit distant. So that seems to be different. Um, I would say there's definitely a lot of interest. I mean, if you talk to the Coder Dojo folks in particular, you know, you'll see a lot of interest from girls. Um, and interestingly, I would say girls are probably more, are, are definitely more active, you know, in terms of social media at an earlier age. So they're, I think they're interacting in a slightly different way. Um, the, the, the examples I picked were essentially random or, one, or people that I've met or ones that have been brought to my attention on it. Um, it it's, it's something we need to, to address overall. Um, but broadly speaking, I, you know, I think it's, it, it is slightly male-led. Uh, even, even so. um, to be honest, I think given where we are, you know, the, you know, the fact that we're seeing so much activity is, is good and to be welcomed. You know, I think you've got to be a little bit careful in terms of how you try and shape this sort of stuff. Um, boys and girls are tricky questions. Thanks for asking that, Stuart. <laughs> uh, yep, up there. Hello. Hi there. I'm Genevieve Dexter from Serious Lunch. Do you see kids um, turning away from this eventually and going analogue? For Ooh. example, I see kids now, they're really into vinyl. Um, they kind of, they think it's kind of cooler not to go the digital way, and that's for kind of, you know, for, so the, the kids separate their social groups into the kids who are cool, you know, the kids who are geeks, the kids who are sporty, and, you know, I've seen seminars about a total rejection of it in the future. Um, I, this, nobody believes me when I say this. I used to be a hip-hop DJ. So I have an enormous love for vinyl. I would like nothing better than to see it come back. Um, I don't think it's going to happen. I don't think there's going to be an outright rejection. I really don't. And you've got to bear in mind as well that we're only midway through, if even that, seeing what this new generation looks like. You know, everything that you see now, a lot of those, those young developers that I threw up on the screen, they're literally the tip of the iceberg. What we need to be looking at are kids who are coming down the line over the next three, four, five years. Um, I, I, I think the... the you know, you're always going to have niches that people will dive into. 
you know, and I think vinyl is definitely becoming one of those. And I think I saw a stat a couple of months ago that, that uh, you know, the amount of records being pressed is actually increasing, uh, which, which is great to see. But I think, you know, music is one of those things that, that kids are unfortunately experiencing at an early age at a lower level quality than I ever thought was possible. Um, and that is becoming more, accept more acceptable. And it's interesting, when you listen to production, you listen to a, as much rap music as I do, you can really see how the production has changed over the last five, six, seven years. Um, you know, if you, you put on something that was produced in, in 95, 96, all the way up to 2000, it's much more bassy and you know, there's more real deep production in it. Whereas today you see less and less of that. So I think it's all kind of conspiring to unfortunately go digital. I, I don't think there is gonna be an outright rejection. I think, you know, there is, there is too much cool stuff there. There is too much immediate access to data. It is, it is too easy um, to not do it. So I, I don't think it would, it, would, it would be a mainstream thing. I mean, hey, look, I could be wrong, but I, I don't think so. Uh, yep, hello. Hi, Trevor Lai from Up Studios in China. A fascinating talk, and I think you brought up a, real, a lot of uh, food for thought. I had a question. A lot of the examples you brought up are platforms. So the YouTubes of the world or the WhatsApps, et cetera. At the same time, I think a lot of hands went up. Uh, there's a lot of content creators in here who are clearly not going to create the next social media platform. Um, can you give examples of content creators who have done a good job of riding or you know, leading this wave of innovation and adapting their content or the way that they've delivered their content across these platforms? Hmm. Um, I can. Um, I think you know, on the game side, if you look at, at at the early successes on the game side, uh, Zepto Labs, Rovio, Outfit7, I think they've done a pretty good job to hang on. I think Rovio are doing a very interesting job of experimenting, you know, both with, with linear content, you know, non-game content within their apps, uh, as well as different games. You see production qualities that are rising. Uh, I think there are, there are smaller, I guess you'd call them more boutique developers, like Tokoboka, who make beautiful, beautiful games. And I think more and more are starting to think about branching into other areas as well. Uh, companies like Story Toys uh, over in Dublin. Um, from a startup perspective, I would say companies like uh, Makey Labs, who are doing 3D printed dolls in the world within there. Uh, I think companies like Made in Me, who, who are creating, okay, they're a platform company, but they're really thinking about content for kids in terms of you know, creating an interesting way for kids to, to, to interact with ebooks and things like that. Um, if you go to YouTube, I mean, there's tons and tons of examples. I mean, look at Annoying Orange. You know, which which came out of that. I think the biggest challenge is, you know, it's 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 extremely, it's. Ex um, are we good. <laughs> it's it's extremely hard to um, to predictably create content that's going to be huge, you know, and it's it's getting tougher and tougher. And I think, you know, the the real challenge is is also one of economics. You know, like if you look at what you can generate from TV content today that's that's produced. You know, it's still quite far away from the economics behind online video content. You know, on, on, on even on Maker or, or any or Awesomeness TV or anything like that. So there's there's a gap there, and we've got to figure out how to bridge that. And in time, it will change. And you're starting to see things like you know the the uh, the online video upfronts, you know, which are mirroring what's going on on TV. Um, but it's going to be several years before I think the the, the economics of online video can justify. Um, a lot of what we see on the TV side. It's a very long-winded way of saying it's not an easy space. It's exciting, but it's, 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 it's not easy. Uh, hi, my name's um, Adamu. I'm from EVCL. Uh, we're a Nigerian animation company. I just wanted to take 
his point slightly further in. I'm more thinking about, do you see the kids, when you say they're going to create and destroy? I'm a content producer, so we're looking at our skills. And I saw that graph you had where you had like 40, I think it's below the Photoshop one, 40% we're using, making their own films, mm -hmm. videos. Mm -hmm. Do you see a scenario where, not completely, but they kind of just ignore and just create for themselves? So they're not taking in what we're sending them or whoever it is, whatever company, blah, blah, blah. They're just like that. Screw that, we're doing this. I think, you know, I mean, that, that's, I don't know if we're gonna get to a point where it's completely that, but that's a graph and it's going up. You look at things like PewDiePie, you look at all the Minecraft videos that are out there, there are tons and tons and tons of examples. I mean, YouTube is the most powerful kids property in the world right now, despite not technically allowing kids under 13 to actually create anything on there. Right? I mean, just think about that for a second, right? And, and Google haven't even been trying with YouTube in terms of YouTube, YouTube and kids. And that's starting to change. But, you know, it is getting easier and easier and easier for kids to create their own video content, you know? And, and you know, that's good and bad. You know, one in terms of, well, you know, does a cat running into a wall really deserve, you know, half a million views? Yes, obviously. But, um, <laughs> You know, so, so where does high quality content go? And I was, it was very interesting. I was talking to, um, to, to a music label recently and they, um, their uh, production budgets are still very much weighted in terms of doing a traditional music video, like a three and a half minute, four minute music video. And they're realizing that actually they're gonna completely um, uh, flip that and start investing in like, you know, six second Vine clips because they're getting as much utility out of kids sharing Vine clips. You know, in fact, far more than they would out of a, you know, a single piece of three and a half minutes of linear content. Um, it, it's not an easy space, you know, and, and in terms of, of creation and destruction, I think that's a, a great example. Um, it, it's not easy. Sorry. Good, good point, though. Question uh, there. I think the uh, content of your, your talk, particularly for everybody here, is... Um, amazing and very important. But how many of us have actually, can think about what it actually does to kids? I mean, the thought of these kids, these geniuses, if you like, sitting 24 hours, perhaps, in front of a computer, nearly that. Um, you know, I'm struggling to do something to get children to go outside and, and, and understand the huge importance of nature, mm. um, entomology, to the world today. You know, and, and here, you know, you're painting a picture of children who are turning their back to anything but technology, everything but technology. And I think there's a, a very alarming side to this incredible mm. picture that you're painting. And I hope that people will really think about that side as well. And that the industry ought to be thinking about, you know, the l nature, the world mm. that we all depend on. Mm. I, I totally agree. I mean, it's, it, it's an excellent point, and, and, you know, I think particularly when you look at the phenomenon of, of, of you know, I guess to take that to an extreme example, things like cyberbullying, you know, that's, that's done and it's becoming more and more of a problem in school, and, and the general downsides of this, and I, I, I touched on it a little earlier, you know, when I talked about what, what I'd been learning from that psychologist I was spending some time with, and, you know, this change, change is not always good. You know, I'm not saying that going up this curve is going to be without speed bumps, is going to be without downsides. You know, change does not always mean progress either. Sometimes it's just change. 
Um, these are issues that we have to think about and that we have to deal with. But you know, I think one of, the, one of the things that we have to ensure is that if we don't have a sustainable industry, we're not going to be able to do anything about it because we're not, we're not going to be around to actually be able to support this and be responsible about it. So we've got to think about these things hand in hand. But it, it, it's absolutely an issue that, you know, and I think the, the gap today between parents and kids in terms of technical knowledge is wider than it ever, ever has been. I think that will change actually over the next few years, but I think probably the next one, two, three years, that gap is going to be extremely wide. Not easy. So it's been listening, Dylan, I've been thinking, you know, what you're actually saying is, you know, kids are now getting the means of production to create their own content, and you know, I'm questioning why we as adults think we should be in charge of making their own content. We don't tell them how to play their games in their playground. You know, well, we try. Are they, yeah, we try. But they're sort of reacquisitioning that. But you started off saying it's a fragmented world, and yet the pervasive medium for being able to reach children still seems to be television. And children are incredibly tribal, they flock around stuff. All the digital companies I know have been most successful when they've launched an advertising campaign on TV. Mm -hmm. So there's some yep. dichotomy going on there, which is, and I just wonder where you think television is in this. Is it just had its day and dwindling, or is it actually, because it's still a broadcast medium and has that ability to reach anyone, somehow going to be the reuniter where everything else is fragmenting? It's, it's an excellent question, and, and I guess to be clear, I'm definitely not one of those people who think that, that TV is going to zero or is going away, because that, that's simply not the case. You know, I, I think you've got two things that are, that are going on. I think the, the, um, the engagement with TV is definitely changing. I mean, we're all seeing much more time shifting, you know, in terms of kids watching on catch-up and kids watching on tablet and things like that. So the TV content is getting watched in different places at different times. I think that's happening. So in terms of scheduled TV watching, that is definitely and clearly, you know, that, that is actually shifting. Um, I think what you're also seeing is just a rise in all these other channels in terms of engagement. You're seeing more and more, you know, second or third screen, you know, where the TV is on in the background as well. Um, and, and again, I, I'd love to give you like this silver bullet message saying, hey, it's going to be this simple. But the reality is it's not. You know, you're going to have multiple channels to deal with. That's why we set up the company, literally to do the multi-channel marketing and be in all of those places. It, it's really not an easy problem. And I think from a content production point of view, you know, when you're thinking about making TV, you, know, you do have to think about, well, you know, what are kids going to do on tablets? Should that be the same or a different experience? How long should it be? You know, does it make sense to make 10-minute, you know, 12-minute, 15-minute um, TV shows? Should maybe it, it, it be a lot shorter? Um, there's a lot of different considerations. TV is going to be around in the kids' space for a long, long time. In the same way that programmatic advertising isn't really going to work in the kids' space. Um, kids is different to a lot of other consumer audiences, I think, for that reason. Um, so it's, it's, it's a good question. The picture, the landscape gets more complicated. That's what's going to happen. And I think you're going to see more breakout IPs you know, come from uh, the digital world, from YouTube, from all those other places, and start to make their way across. And we're seeing, there's, there's plenty of examples, and I'm sure you can point to as many as I can. Um, but I, 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 you know, I, I think um, from a rights management perspective, that starts to get pretty interesting soon. I suspect a lot of the conversations are going to start having more lawyers in it. Okay, I think we wrapped up. Yeah, okay. Thank you all very, very much.